Good morning, Lake Avenue family. My name is Russell Aparicio, and um, I can usually be found ushering at door number six. Uh, next, to, next to me is my son, Julian. Uh, he ushers also, and I'll allow him to introduce himself. Uh, hello, my name is Julian Aparicio, and I will be leading you all in scripture reading. Our scripture reading today is found in Marks 10, 42 to 45, and Romans 12, 1 to 8. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Mark 10, 42 to 45. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now in Romans 12, 1-8. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us, If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then lead and then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm sure many of you have been aware of this one particular situation with a family in uh, Sudan. Uh, Allow me to read this if, if you're not. Miriam Ibrahim was first arrested in August last year in Sudan. She was arrested because her husband is a Christian, and one of her relatives had claimed that Miriam was committing adultery for marrying outside of Islam. Because her father is a Muslim, uh, Miriam's a Christian, she's a follower of Jesus. Sudan follows the Sharia law, and in its criminal code, an apostasy is punishable by death. Apostasy is the renouncing of the Islamic religion either by refusing to follow Islam or through being married to a believer of an alternative religion. 
Under Sharia law, marriage between a Muslim woman and a non-Muslim man is illegal and constitutes adultery. And because Miriam's father is a Muslim, she is considered to be a Muslim. Those charged with apostasy have three days to renounce their religion and follow Islam. Miriam first appeared before the court just last month on May 11th. On May 15th, 27-year-old Miriam, while she was eight months pregnant, appeared before the court in Sudan's capital city on charges of apostasy and adultery. When she refused to renounce her Christian faith, the judges sentenced Miriam to death by hanging. Miriam has also been sentenced to receive 100 lashes for being married to a Christian man. When Miriam was sentenced on May 15th, she was eight months pregnant, and on May 27th, just a few weeks ago, uh, she gave birth. She remains jailed with her newborn baby girl, Maya, and Martin, her 20-month-old son, in a women's prison. With Maya and Martin beside her, they're now all three living in a prison cell. She's had very little contact with her husband during this time. Miriam's been shackled by heavy chains since her death sentence ruling, which is customary practice for all prisoners awaiting execution. Her lawyers have said that Miriam remained chained by her legs even while she was in labor. I don't tell you Miriam's story to sensationalize or to open up a sermon, but to give context. To give a context, there are people like Miriam living out her faith, and here are the consequences of it. You can read in the bulletin, Tuesday's a big day for us, with the verdict and the appeals coming with Matt and Grace Huang. I've been a part of this church long enough to know that there are even some of you sitting here today who've had to flee your own country to come find peace because of your faith. We are the second week into a four-week series called When Jesus is in Charge. And I think for those who maybe live a life more like Jeff Matisich have lived, we need these stories and we need these contexts because the, um, the fear for me would be we sit through a four-week series called When Jesus is in Charge and we walk away going, he really, you know, for Jesus to be in charge of my life, I need to wake up 15 minutes earlier so I can pray a little bit longer. Or when Jesus is in charge of my life, I, I'm able to fill in the blank. There's context. We are... We are talking about a kingship here. We aren't just talking about Jesus being in charge in a general sense. We are talking about what happens to our lives when we proclaim what we have sung this morning, what we have prayed this morning, what we have celebrated this morning, saying that God is everything and that our faith in Christ is the thing that defines us in this life. If that is true for you and it's true for me, our lives look different. They should look different. And I need stories like Miriam's, not just as a neat reminder of what's happening somewhere else in the world, but as a reminder that following Jesus and making him king of our life should require something huge, if it be asked of us. And that's my prayer for us this morning. My prayer is that you and I, when we leave this place, we will have encountered God through his word in such a way that we would grab more a hold of what it means to have Jesus be the king of our lives, for him to be in charge of us, and that we might live the way he calls us to live, and we might find strength and courage from those among us and among us in the world who are following. Join me in prayer. God, help us this morning. Help us not just uh, enter into the idea of you being in charge in a trivial kind of bonus kind of way. 
God, help us understand what you call uh, us to do, how you call us to live. Help us understand the cost. Help us understand the lifestyle. Give us a clear picture of what it means for a life to be fully submitted to you. God, we do pray for Matt and Grace. We pray for Miriam and her family and these two beautiful children in a prison cell. We pray for your justice. We pray for your goodness. We pray for your mercy for them and that their stories would even intersect with our story this morning and it would embolden us as we seek to follow you. Amen. We'll be mostly in the Romans passage that was read, but before we jump into chapter 12, verse 1 through 8, I just, if you could bear with me for a moment for about a 120 year context of what's happening uh, in the Roman Empire at this time. So we're going to talk roughly what's happening 60 years before Jesus is alive and living and 60 years after. Roman Empire, 60 years before, rough, this is all rough, uh, 60 years before Jesus uh, came to this earth and lived and died, was expanding, it was growing, it's always been a very diverse empire, lots of different nations, lots of different people groups. But about 60 years before Jesus was born, there was this influx into the Roman Empire of, of, of Jewish people. And they were brought into the empire to be slaves. There was a huge addition of them into the Roman Empire, primarily there to be slaves of the lower class, of the servile class. They're coming and they're present. Now Jesus comes and he lives and he dies. And now we, if you know the story of how this works, Jesus, uh, the gospel and the church start in Jerusalem and they start spreading out. And here we are 60 years later into this new day. And Rome is, continues to be a very ethnically diverse place, full of a very cosmopolitan, it's very influential, but the church now, 60 years after Jesus has died, is starting to really be quite influential, probably the most influential place on the globe at that time. And, 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 but, but 10 years before Romans is written, there's all kinds of infighting that are happening because you've got a large number of Jewish people who have now converted to following Jesus, Jewish Christians, but the gospel isn't just for Jews anymore, and now Gentile Christians are starting to come to faith and be part of churches, and there's tension between the two groups. In fact, so much tension that the government said to the Jewish uh, people about 10 years before Romans was written, you all need to leave, you need to get out of here, we can't handle all this, this argument. We, this is not good for, for our empire. And so a large number of Jewish people were expelled from the empire 10 years before we get this letter. So when Paul is writing in Romans, that's to the context of what he's writing. You have an influential church. that, And, and when we say church, it's not like this building. These were home gatherings, most likely, connected to temples and synagogues. But they were churches that were meeting inside homes, and they were all spread throughout the empire. And they were now, the Gentile Christians outnumbered the Jewish Christians, because the Jews have left, and some have started to come back, and some remained because they were slaves. But in, in these churches, people who are calling on Jesus as Lord, you've got people who, who are Gentile Christians, and their Jewish slaves are Christians as well. And so you have an influential church that's very spread out, that is most likely your ver the way you connected in these homes were people who looked like you and lived like you, and it was your kind of group of people. But you knew down the street or next door there was a Jewish group gathering the same kind of way. So you had an influential church that was spread out. That is the context to which Paul is writing. 
So that's why in the first 11 chapters of Romans, if you've ever started to read that or gone through that, you know that is really heavy theology because he's writing to a very heavy situation. He's trying to address things like you've got this group of people who have always been God's chosen people, who've had this special set-apart relationship with God. And now Jesus comes on the scene, and now there's these Gentiles. They've never been part of that agreement, that, that covenant. And now they're kind of leading the churches. And, and it's starting to spread through these people. And you have some confusion, like, how much of my Jewishness am I supposed to keep? What about all this stuff we've done before? It doesn't seem to apply to these people. Influential church, fragmented, based on ethnicity, based on experience, based on religious experience. And so Paul spends the first 11 chapters in Romans speaking to the theological issues to help them understand how the gospel fits into the larger story of God. So in the first 11 chapters of Romans, you have themes like justification, you have themes of salvation, and essentially how does this new community of faith, how does the church build upon, fit with, make sense of all of this old community kind of stuff. How Jewish do we need to be to be a follower of Jesus? But in chapter 12, where we will start the sermon today, there's a shift. It moves from being a kind of a theological piece on what we should believe and how we should, uh, to how we should live. Chapter 12 is a shift in the letter to say, now that all this we've talked about this, and you understand how this all works in salvation and the Jewish story and the larger story of God, chapter 12 is the shift that says, now that this is all you know what to do, here's how you should live. And in verse 1, very familiar verses to those of us who've been uh, in church a while because we probably had shirts with them or bumper stickers or something like that at some point, where it says, therefore, here's the shift from 11 to 12. Therefore, because of all this stuff I've just spent 11 chapters telling you about how it all works. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's three movements we're going to look at in Romans. first movement is this, what I just read, is the commitment. That Paul spends the first two verses calling out what a commitment looks like for this new community. For those who call Jesus their Savior. For those who are following God. For those who are part of this church. Paul tells them in the first two verses of chapter 12, this is what it means. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and... Renew your mind. Essentially what Paul is saying is, here's the commitment. For those of us who are the church, the commitment is this. I need everything from you. You've got to give God everything. Offer your body as a sacrifice. Sacrifice to so many of us, not all of us here, is a word that has lost any kind of real meaning because honestly, I use sacrifice like I'm not going to eat carbs this week. I will sacrifice carbs. Right. Or, or last night I sacrificed some sleep so that we could stay up a little bit later. Like, remember the context. These are people, even the, even the, the Christians, the church, we're still going to temple probably twice a day, still offering sacrifices in the temple, very familiar with death and blood and pain. So when they read in that letter that God wants your body to be a sacrifice, they understood the cost of what that meant. 
It wasn't an intellectual ascent of like, oh, sacrifice today. It was no, like God wants everything. He wants your body. Are you willing to give it to him? He doesn't just stop with body. He says he also wants your mind. He wants every day for you to renew your mind, to learn how to put him in charge. He wants transformation of our mind. He wants us to be learned and learning all the time about who he is and how we are to live in his world. I was a camp director at, at, at Forest Home uh, for, for a few years before I was high school pastor, and there was one week of camp, I remember we used to, con- they still do, contract with churches. And this youth pastor came up, and he found me on Sunday night before the first uh, message of the week. And is as custom at most camps, Wednesday night at camp, we would give a gospel presentation and have the students have an opportunity to respond to follow Jesus or have their lives recommitted. And this youth pastor came up to me with a really excited smile. And he goes, I just want you to know, Jeff, on Wednesday night, there will be no first-time commitments from my youth group because I'm bringing all Christians and, and I thought about that, and I didn't argue with him, and I smiled and was probably nice, but it stood out to me there, and it, stood out to me, it stands out to me now, that where did we get this idea that we only have to give our first commitment to God once? Like the scripture here is calling for a daily, here's my body, God, and here's my mind, God. It's all yours. And although I believe sincerely that we can pray a prayer of salvation and that counts and matters and, it, and it's good, but it's not, it's not a life of discipleship. A life of discipleship is every day offering our mind again, offering our body again to God and saying, it is yours, God. I think when we talk about the commitment that Paul is talking to the Romans church, the theme is give it all to God. Everything needs to be given. To have Jesus be in charge of your life, to make Jesus king of your life, requires everything. Miriam's story shows us that. Matt and Grace's story shows us that. That when we really put God in the middle, we have to be ready and willing to give it all to him every day. The second movement in the scripture. So we've been called to this commitment, which is just a really light commitment, everything. But then he immediately follows up and, and builds upon this idea that he, God wants everything, but there's going to be conflict. So we move from this commitment of giving everything to God to Paul really spelling out the conflict that is going to come when we make those commitments. There's two conflicts in the text I want to look at. One, the first conflict is a conflict of allegiance. We, we, we'll go back to verse 2 for this, but you see this image. There's this conflict that you and I have, Right? Where, where there's the ways of the world, there's the patterns of this world, there's the thinking of the day, there's the, the thinking of the ages, there's the philosophy, there's the cultural norms. There's that's very present, and that is in conflict at times with the way that God calls us to live. So when he says, when he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Transformation and the patterns of this world are in conflict. Our allegiance to are we going to follow God, are we going to allow Him to be in charge of our lives, are we going to make Him king of our lives, is in conflict with the ways that we are surrounded by all the time. 
And so often those, we, we can get carried away on the big ones and go, like, that makes sense. So I, we could say something like murder, and we could go, yeah, murder, that might be the way in some parts of the world that's the norm, but we know as following Jesus, we would never murder because he values life, every life, and everybody's made in the image of God. And so that doesn't feel like a very big conflict. But I'm telling you, I think that the ways, the patterns, the philosophy of the ages is much more subtle sometimes, most of the time. Because it says there are values, there are a way of thinking about things that are so different from the way God thinks about them. Here's one that, that I just couldn't get out of my head this week. I, I think, I, I worry that there's this philosophy that we think is a theology sometimes that says this. If I'm being wise, if I'm doing the things that God is asking me to do, if my decisions are honoring God, if I am in the center of God's will for my life, that will certainly mean that I should either make money or at least not cost me much money. See, that's, a, that's a more of like a capitalistic value than it is a kingdom value. And here's, here's how it played in my mind. When, when Jenny was pregnant, I mean, I was somewhat responsible, but um, when she was pregnant, we had this huge issue. We really sensed, because we are a first-generation Christ-following family, we really sensed that what we were starting was going to require us to, for, for us to, we just, honestly, we just sensed God was calling Jenny not to work full time. And I was meeting with a, a Christian uh, counselor at the time over lots of things, and we had this huge conflict because everything, people in our life, people from church, not at church, neighbors, was saying, how can you do that living in Los Angeles? How can you do that living in Pasadena? Do you realize what, you're, what might happen? If, if Jenny doesn't work full time, I mean, you guys, you're going to barely make it. You won't be able to do vacation. You won't be able to, you'll have to shop different places. You'll have to, and, and I, we were starting to buy that, going, is this, maybe God didn't call us to that, because, because if God called us to that, then, but, but see the value. The value was that somehow all of the choices we make in life mean we will either make money or at least it won't cost us anything. And yet you read the scriptures, and that's a, there's a very different image of one, how we view money or the abandon of following God, where he says, take up your cross. I mean, get, it's all going to go. You, you've got to follow it all. He wants everything. I remember sitting with that Christian counselor, and he looked at me as I was explaining this conflict. And he looks at me and goes, so where do you see anywhere in the scriptures that every good choice we make means we're going to make money? And it just, it hit me, and it gave us peace and confidence. See, that's a subtle pattern of the world that has crept into the ways we think, even theologically, that somehow it shouldn't cost us too much, and really, if it's wise, we'll probably make. That's a pattern of this world versus, versus God. We see that conflict, the conflict of allegiance. Are we going after the philosophies of the day, the culture around us, or are we going hard after God's way? The second conflict here is a conflict of focus. You see, Paul shifts the argument and he talks about, don't think too highly of yourself. Think of yourself with some sober judgment. And he says things about um, one body, having many members, then we belong to one another. These, this focus is in conflict. Because there's an idea that we live for ourselves, we think very highly of ourselves. Our life is about looking inward and making sure that we and our own are okay, versus that we're a part of something much bigger seeing ourselves in the context of the church and in the community. That's a conflict for us. 
That's a conflict even in, in Jesus' time. That's why we read the Mark scripture. What's happening in that Mark scripture is Jesus is with his disciples, and James and John, you get this idea that they're kind of like running up to Jesus to, to get away from the other ten, and they're like, hey, Jesus, real quick, so when, when you die, how about we get the seats up there, right and left? James, John, we, we get the best seats up in heaven. And Jesus does what Jesus does and just like just rails on them and says, says, you don't even get it. If you think this is about your status, you've missed the whole point of what I am. Because not even me, not even Jesus came to get status. I came to be a slave and to be a servant. There is a conflict for us in thinking of ourselves versus seeing ourselves in the context of something bigger. Think about the context of Romans. How, what that would have meant. I'm a Gentile church, a Gentile home group. Uh, we're trying to figure out Jesus and think about Paul's words. Hey, 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 Gentile, rich, influential Christians, um, don't think too highly of yourself. You know, your, your slaves and their gathering over there, they're, they're part of you too. They are just as important. In fact, the way this new community works is you guys coming together. And surely there's different roles. You've been made differently. I've put different gifts in each one of you. But, but this is now about you not being separate. It's about you coming together. But every day, you and I, just like the Roman church, are tugged to saying our identity and the things that define us are the most important things in this world versus seeing those things in the context of where God has placed us and how we need one another. He doesn't stop with just asking for commitment and calling out the conflict. He moves to the final thing, which is a command. And the command is this. Be that new body. Be that community that comes together, brings all of the ways that God has made you distinct and different, and you come together and we get the image and we get the language of this idea of the body of Christ, and it's significant. Again, if Paul is writing to a group of people, some Jewish Christians, they had a corporate, Israel had a corporate identity. In fact, we can look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all these things that was basically setting up the corporate identity. And, and it went like this. So God chose Israel to be a special nation. They were his chosen people. They had certain ways they were to live. They had different roles and functions. And as they lived out that identity, it was to demonstrate to the world who Yahweh is, who the real God is, right? And so now, this is part of the, the issue. Does all that still count? What do we do with all this identity that we have had for years, and now there's these Gentiles, and they're not part of it. In fact, they were specifically not part of it. So help us understand. And what we get isn't just a, 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 a mandate, hey, it's good to do some community service for the church, no, the body of Christ now is the new corporate identity of those who follow God. It's now, now there's roles and functions and gifts and the idea that there's, we're different, but when we come together and serve one another and serve the world around us, that is the new identity of the people of God. And when people see and interact with that identity, that's how we demonstrate to the world who God is. See, serving isn't just extracurricular at a church. Serving is essential. It's foundational. If we aren't serving one another, if we aren't serving in this place or in this community or both, we are not demonstrating to the world our identity as the body of Christ. 
But far too often, we somehow view the idea of serving through the lens of volunteerism and how uh, the church just wants to do some more stuff and they need more people to work with kids or they need more people to park cars, whatever it would be. It's not that. If we're trying to be faithful to the text, and we're trying to say this, that we're a church that believes that Jesus is in charge. And when Jesus is in charge, there are things that his people do. And one of the things that his people do is take on their corporate identity as the body of Christ, serving one another, coming together. The reality is this, though, and this is my prayer has been all week, and here's the moment. Nothing I'm going to say right now is, is, comes from a place of guilt, Or shame, I pray that many of you are encouraged because you are serving somewhere. And I pray for those of you who aren't serving right now that you're also encouraged. That that there's nothing about this other than I just want to, I've said Jesus is in charge of my life and I need to make my life look more like that. And people who say Jesus is in charge of their life, they serve. But I think the reality for us at Lake Avenue Church, and I've been here since 1999, if you can believe it is that I think somewhere between 20 and 30% of the people at this church are serving for the rest. I also think, as I walk around and talk to people, that serving or the idea of serving somewhere at Lake Avenue Church is more a part of our testimony than it is part of our reality. So lots of people can say, well, I used to serve. I, I used to, for years I did this. And, and I, there are times where we need to rest and, and take breaks, but, but friends, family, serving in the body is not extracurricular, it's essential. And when we're not serving, we're not taking on our full identity as the body of Christ, thus not demonstrating to the world who God is at the fullest. So, here's the tough shift. Because we've been praying as spiritual leaders and pastors and about, in, in a message like this, we've got to give some reality checks as to where things are at and we also need to give real tangible places that we sense are our most important places right now. And, and I know I was the youth pastor and that I love kids and I still cry at every dedication. It has nothing to do with my agenda, it's just where the greatest need is, to be honest. Our babies are toddlers. It takes about 108 hours a week, a weekend, to do the ministries for the amount of kids we have. 108. Uh, we, are, we only have 68 of those hours right now. That leaves a lot of hours left. We are blowing up with young children and young families right now. And we need people literally just to hold a baby. You don't have to, ch- you don't have to change a diaper here. We have people that do that, if you can believe it. Surely at a church our size, there are people who could say, once a month, I'd like to hold a baby. Or I'd like to run around with a three-year-old so I don't have to just hear about Jeremy's stories of three-year-olds, but I could be in the life of a three-year-old again. <laughs> For an hour, it's a good deal. Trust me, I've got two. I'll take an hour over. Okay. Um, <laughs> our kids' ministry, elementary age, 74 hours a weekend is what we need to do what God's given us. And we're making it on 38 right now. We have a week from today. One week from today, Vacation Bible School will be the eve of Vacation Bible School. And I stood up here last year and I said, let's start praying that next year we grow so big that we can't be in the chapel. Friends, we'll have over 400 kids in this room in in a week from Monday. Which means next week, we need about 20 people, 15 people to spend 
Sunday afternoon, because you work during the week and we get that, but we just need some people to move some things around and build this beautiful set so that kids can meet Jesus. We need people to give up a Sunday afternoon. We have roles as small as 30 minutes a morning because we believe with all these new families coming on our campus, they, they deserve a smile. So just to say good morning, welcome to Lake Avenue Church, 30 minutes each morning. We still have some roles for co-leading groups and things like that, but I'll tell you this, it would be a tragedy for us to have over 400 kids at this church, but we didn't have enough adults to come alongside them. We can't demonstrate to the world our full identity if we're short. You've probably picked up some change that we're trying to move away from having just people who get paid tell you where to park. We're trying to be a church. We're trying to be a church that says we can actually help people find parking spots from ourselves. We don't need to pay a professional to do that. We need more people to do that. We need more people to stand on campus and say good morning. Our foundation has this brilliant opportunity this summer. Brilliant. They've got a group of kids from Pasadena Unified School District, elementary age, who are underperforming in reading. We get them for a month. And in a month, last year, every kid that was a part of the program didn't just get up to reading, but jumped a grade ahead in one month. That happens on our campus, and they need people literally just to come for an hour every now and then over that month and sit and read with some kids. Here's how this hit me this week. I read with my children all the time. And I can easily say that is an other-centered activity. But the reality is that's a me-centered thing. They're mine. I have an interest. And if I can tithe back just a few hours over the next month to read with somebody who's not my child, I think that's what God was showing me this week in this message. So I told Nancy Stiles, sign me up. I surely can walk across the way and read with a child a few times. Friends, these are our most strategic places where we need people. Not because we need volunteers. No, 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 no. No, no. Because... We feel these are the kinds of ministries God has called us to. And when God calls us to those things, we believe we have a responsibility to fulfill those things and demonstrate to those children and to the world and to their parents and to this church what it looks like to be the body of Christ. So we'll have an opportunity to respond to that. We're trying something different. There'll be a, a slide with a phone number. If you want, you can pull out, whenever, pull out your phone now. All you would need to do is text your name and which area of ministry you want to get more information on. And we'll get back to you in a couple of moments. But at the end of the service, we'll also have people up here. Let me pray for us as we kind of reflect as we sing this next song. God, uh, we declare to you this morning to be a group of people who say, we want you to have it all. We want you to have all of our bodies, all of our minds. We give it all to you. But God, your word has affirmed what we know. Giving it all to you is very difficult. And it comes with conflict. It comes with conflict of knowing your ways versus the world's ways. It comes with conflict in living a self-centered life versus the other-centered life that you call us to. But God, ultimately, we want to be the kind of people, uh, the kind of people who follow your command and serve one another to see one another as more important than ourselves. We declared that to Ethan this morning. We took a commitment that said his well-being matters to each one of us. God, help us live that out more and more fully at this church. Not so that we will have more people at stuff, but God, that you would use our service 
to point people to who you are, that our corporate identity as the body of Christ would be so real and thick and compelling that more and more people would come and want to be a part of this family and call you Father and call Jesus Savior. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.